Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. Here on Straight Talk, we bring the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. For me, it was the best kick in the ass that we could receive. Sometimes they were throwing grapes. I was like, man, they look good. They were like, <laughs> don't no, waste those. No, exactly. I was like, don't waste those. I realized that it was a unique place for creating the most iconic rosé on years. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our May 31, 2023 issue. Our cover story features the wine king of the south of France, Gerard Bertrand, and we've also got our annual Red Burgundy Report covering some of the world's most coveted Pinot Noirs. Headlining this episode is an exclusive, rare interview with the legendary Aubert de Villain of Burgundy's Domaine de la Romaniconti, a.k.a. DRC. We'll also talk to Bertrand, as well as budding French wine star and retired NBA champ, Tony Parker. And joining me now, as always, is our podcast director, Rob Taylor. I feel like kind of a letdown after that list of names. <laughs> <laughs> you are a star in our own right, Rob. We couldn't do it without you. That's the most important thing. Uh, how's it going out in Napa? It's going well. They seem to be at the tail end of this rainy season that has been uh, a bit more vociferous than most rainy seasons. I see that the pruning is uh, finishing up in the vineyards here, and it looks like they're getting ready for another growing season. Well, before I let you take us into the meat of the episode, I would be remiss if I didn't remind our listeners that it is last call for the Grand Tour. That is our super tasting. The number of wines has gone up since we last reported. It is now up around 230 wines, all rated 90 points or higher. The Grand Tour kicks off April 15th in Hollywood, Florida. It then heads to Chicago on April 22nd. And last stop is Las Vegas, April 29th. Tickets are on sale now at grandtour.winespectator.com. Now, our Grand Tour guests get to taste some of the rarest and highest scoring wines from around the world. The grandest crew of them all, Burgundy's esteemed Domaine de la Romaniconti slash Romaniconti. That's the wine that sells for more than 10K a bottle. That's not at the Grand Tour, but all you have to do to get a little Romaniconti experience is stay right here. Where we're also joined by our very own Bruce Sanderson. Welcome back, Bruce. Thanks, guys. Good to be back on Straight Talk. So, Bruce, you've been covering Burgundy since the 1995 vintage for us here at Wine Spectator. We're now on to the 2020 vintage with your latest report. I'm going to guess the topic that immediately comes to mind for you when you think about 25 plus years of tasting Burgundy is the same topic that's on every grower's mind, climate change. Are you seeing that play out right now in Burgundy too? Absolutely. Certainly since the 2000 vintage, we've had seven harvests that have begun in August. And the 2020 vintage is remarkable for the fact that it not only started in August, but it finished in August. In terms of Cote de Nuit and Cote de Bone, Bruce, is there perhaps a little insider tip? Did one side do better than the other? I think they both did very well in, in 2020. I gave the Cote de Nuit 96 points for a vintage rating. Obviously, it's going to vary a little bit from place to place. And especially, you know, the Grand Cru's always have the competitive advantage from their location. The Cote de Bone, I rated 94 points. And uh, it's a little bit wider than the Cote de Nuit. So the soils vary a little bit more. The exposures vary a little bit more. It tends to ripen earlier, but they were very successful in 2020 as well. All right, so all this talk of Burgundy has me salivating for a glass of Pinot Noir, Bruce, but we've got this interview with Aubert de Villain. He does not do interviews normally. 
He's also got five decades of experience there, which is twice what you got, not to besmirch your 25-plus years of taste in Burgundy. But this was a pretty special interview. Tell us about some of the things that you guys talked about. I mean, he, he's been everywhere. Judgment of Paris. He, he interviewed Mondavi when he was young. He's got his eye on California with his HDV project. What were some of the highlights from the conversation? I was so happy that Aubert agreed to the interview. I've known him a couple of decades I did not know that he was a journalist and that he had interviewed Robert Mondavi. That was a big surprise to me. I did ask him about highlights from his career, and he told us about a couple of the wines that inspired him early on. You know, he's just such a wealth of information and so passionate about the region. One of my highlights is certainly the second vintage I worked on at the Domaine. That was 1966. I remember 66 as a sort of a like a jewel, a, a moment of glory, which uh, taught me that in Burgundy there was not only vintages with uh, uh, rain and, and botrytis, but also uh, glorious vintages. And almost at the same time, another wine, it was a Musigny of 69, drunk in 72 or 73, Musigny by De Vogue, which also gave me an extraordinary feeling of perfection, but this one, very young. And in fact, uh, today, when I taste uh, vintages like 2019, I think I find again the same magic that I had in this uh, vintages 1969 uh, Musigny. And it is interesting to mention because this same bottle I had five or six years ago at a friend of mine who had kept a few bottles, and I didn't feel the same magic at all that I had. The wine was good, but it was not magic as it was in, in 1972. You are also in a partnership with Larry Hyde and his family, grape growers in Napa Valley's Carneros AVA, making Chardonnay and Pinot Noir under the Hyde de Vilaine label. What's it like making wine in California versus Burgundy? It was an interesting uh, venture. I got uh, married in 71. I should have mentioned this as one of the highlights at the beginning. (laughs) 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 I got married in 71, and I would have never done this uh, venture if my wife hadn't been the uh, first cousin of Larry Hyde. Larry uh, came often to Burgundy to work with us, and uh, we always kept a very uh, good relation w- with him. And uh, one day in a conversation, he, we happened to uh, think that as he w- didn't want to make wine, he was uh, interested entirely in viticulture, why wouldn't we select uh, two or three blocks in Hyde Vineyards and make wine? We would bring the know-how and he would bring the grapes. And so we started this uh, small winery, a very small winery called HDV, Hyde de Villain. It was like coming back 40 years before when I worked for uh, six months in California. And I interviewed at that time for the Revue du Vin de France. I was a little journalist at the time. And uh, I interviewed Robert Mondavi, who was uh, at the time working for his... Uh, family uh, firm called Krug, I think, and that was in 64. This interview with uh, Robert Mondavi, which lasted uh, 
at least three hours plus a lunch is something that uh, was uh, a highlight for me in my uh, career of vigneron, meeting this uh, man who had this extreme energy, who had not done anything by himself yet. He was planning and who wanted to really to, I think the expression is to give us a run for our money. Eh? This, for me also, was one of the things that decided me to write to my father and ask him if he would agree to take me at the domain to work. <laughs> and so I saw uh, Mondavi uh, regularly afterwards, in France mostly, uh, and uh, he, he was a, certainly somebody who inspired people, not only in California, but also out, outside of California. Well, and certainly uh, it was only about a decade later that Stephen Spurrier organized the Judgment of Paris tasting, which was a tasting of California wines, white and red, against uh, Burgundy and Bordeaux. If I can say a word about this, so many things has been, have been told about this uh, tasting, but I was there, and you know, we had one glass only to taste all the wines. Uh, they were tasted one after the other, and it was a social moment. And we were not told before that there would be French wines in it. We, knew, we, we didn't know. <laughs> we knew it when, uh, when Stephen came out and said, because he had asked for our tasting notes, which we gave very easily. And you know, in his mind, it was a little of a game for fun. He didn't realize that uh, this uh, reporter from uh, came a little later and asked him for the results and made the whole story about it. For me, it was a great for uh, the French wines. It was a time uh, when the French wines thought they were the only ones on the planet making great wines, and, uh, and as I said, you know, productivity and all this. And this uh, arrival of the new world and this uh, tasting giving a real uh, sort of... Uh, firework to this was the best thing that could happen to the French wines because it uh, told them, you know, you have to go back to your act and make great wines again. For me, it was the best kick in the ass that we could receive. Tough to follow an interview like that, James, but I think we've got a couple folks here who are up to the task. For sure, Rob. I mean, Aubert de Villain, that's not an interview you get all the time. Some fantastic stories there from him, and that was a fun listen. And we're going to try to keep the trend going here as we've gotten into our May issue cover story, which is about the man who brought France's uh, Languedoc region into the fine wine conversation, Gerard Bertrand. And our colleague Christian Beeler is back to tell us all about it. Welcome back, Kristen. Hey, James. Hey, Rob. Hi, Kristen. So, Kristen, tell us a little bit about the man, Gerard Bertrand. Yes, I've known Gerard and his wines in the U.S. for many years, but I actually got to spend three days with him and his team in Languedoc in December, and it really helped me appreciate just the size and the uniqueness of what he has built there in his effort to champion high-quality single-vineyard wines in Languedoc. He has 17 estates across the region, and he's created this all in his lifetime, he really followed in the footsteps of his father, Georges Bertrand, who had this vision for creating quality wine here, who died tragically when Gerard was only 22 years old. And he'd been playing professional rugby for some of the very best teams in France, but he quit that 
life when he was 29 to devote himself entirely to wine. And a really important aspect of what he does and his mission is he farms everything biodynamically, which he'll talk about in our interview. But he's it's, it's pretty incredible. He's the second largest farmer of biodynamic grapes in the world. Well, I'm guessing he's brought a little bit of that rugby competitive spirit to the way he's tackled the wine industry. Why don't we get to some of those excerpts from your interview, Kristen? Hello, Gerard. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. I miss you. I miss my time in Languedoc. One of my takeaways from that three days I spent with you was just how Languedoc is truly one of the most stunningly beautiful parts of France, even in cold December. I think a lot of people don't realize it's also the most ancient wine-growing region in France. But more recently, the Languedoc has really been known as a region for bulk wine. And when you began uh, building upon your father's vision... You really wanted to change the world's perception of the Languedoc and what it could offer. And that must have been really difficult. It was such a radical move back in the 1980s and 1990s. Talk about what that was like, trying to produce and sell really high-achieving wine from the Languedoc. You know, first of all, I started to make wine with my father when I turned 10. That means, uh, you know, I've done my first vintage in 1975 and... Uh, at the end of the harvest, my father said to me, you know, Gerald, when you will arrive, when you return 50, you will have 40 years of experience. I mean, he has already his vision about this region. And uh, my father like was like an hero in the region because he was one of the first to believe about the potential of the terroir. You know, because when you look at the Languedoc, we make wine for more than 24 centuries but we have developed a quality process for 40, 45 years. That means we have sold a lot of bulk at the beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, in the 70s and in the 80s, my father led these changes and uh, he started to capture the essence of the terroir, including reveal uh, the taste of the, the grape from the region and it was the beginning of uh, the journey but we can say that my father was 20 years ahead the curve you know he pushed and he helped people to to create the reborn of the region mm. yeah and one of the ways that you've in a very bold way helped to elevate the the reputation of the region is by releasing a number of really prestige icon wines, like at Clodora and with La Forge and more recently with Clos de Temple. These are really luxury wines. Yeah. My idea was to promote, uh, you know, an ultimate experience coming from single vineyards because uh, mm. I think it was the easiest way to promote the sense of place for people to understand what does it mean, the difference between La Forge and Le Viala Claude Aura, and uh, the wine talk for themselves. I mean, my idea was to compete with the most iconic red wines in the world, like uh, Vega Sicilia, Sassicaia, Opus mm. One, and so on. And this is what I have done uh, starting mm. in, the, in the late 90s. It took time, but we had fantastic ratings since the beginning, and people really enjoy the real taste of these plots. Well, and as you say, it, it, I mean, I, I was there with you and it, it really is a magical spot and the terroir is some of the finest in the world. And I think that there's a lot of excitement around the Languedoc right now because the word is out. And it's certainly within the wine community, there's a lot of wine producers who are buying land there. What do you see for the future of the region? 
First of all, uh, I remain very optimistic for many reasons, because it's my way of life. Also, because even if we are facing some challenges with the climate everywhere in the world, I do think that it's too late to be pessimistic. And number three, mm. because uh, I want to prove to people, because we are the leader in the world for organic and biodynamic farming, that, you know, viticulture must be an example and must lead the change for the entire agriculture. And I think it's time for people to understand that preserving the biodiversity on the planet is really a priority. And the good thing with wine is that in a bottle of wine, you can deliver some key secret and you can also explain to people how the nature is beautiful and how the biodiversity allows us to reveal the sense of place everywhere in the world. I think a lot of our readers are probably going to be most familiar with your Cote de Roses brand, which is, I believe, on its way to being one of the very top rosés sold in the U.S. market. But you also have another rosé that is made in much smaller volumes, which is a newer project called Clos de Temple in Cabriere. And that's another really mythical spot that you, you finished construction on that facility a couple of years ago. And it's dedicated to the single wine. It's one rosé. Uh, made from a blend of five grapes. Talk a little bit about your vision for this really special place and your decision to make this $195 wine that is a rosé. You know, we have a long tradition of rosé in uh, Languedoc. And, uh, you know, we produce twice more rosé than Provence. We have the same grape varieties. And uh, Carbriere was always a terroir dedicated for rosé since the King Louis XIV. The King Louis XIV really enjoyed the, the wine of uh, this region. And uh, at this time, they called that the Vin Vermeil, wine of a night. That means he was between red and rosé. He was light red or a dark rosé. That means the terroir is really unique because it's a combination between uh, schist and limestone. The schist develops the texture, the complexity, and the limestone keeps the freshness and the minerality. And we have all vines. And the first time I visit this plot, I fall in love with the beauty of this ecosystem. And I realized that it was a unique place for creating the most iconic rosé on earth. So, Kristen, what's the verdict? Has Bertrand been able to create the most iconic rosé on Earth? Well, he's definitely created something pretty extraordinary up there. It's this really mystical, remote place, and he's using only horses to farm. There's no machines. These really old vines um, going in to make this one rosé. And what struck me about them is just how youthful they are. As you know, most rosé is not made to age. In fact, a lot of it ages really poorly. But these are incredibly fresh. I tasted five back vintages with him, back to the 2018 vintage, which was the first vintage from the property. And they just have this incredible freshness and energy, even after all these years. So it's, it's really a paradigm shift in how we think about rosé. He's also taken on his most ambitious project yet, which is the renovation of Chateau de Celeron. It's this sprawling 400-acre estate, uh, which was the home of Toulouse-Lautrec, the famous French painter. Um, and before that, Julius Caesar lived there during one of his military campaigns 2,000 years ago. So it's this place with a lot of history. And Gerard is planning to turn this into a 
massive biodynamic vegetable farm, a vineyard with restaurants, a luxury hotel. It's a really, really ambitious project. Well, if the 19th century had a celebrity winemaker, Toulouse-Lautrec would be my bet. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Um, that trend had not started back then. But today, southern France is home to more celebrity winemakers than perhaps any other region. That list keeps growing. Gerard himself actually is partnered with Jean Bon Jovi and his son Jesse. And then there's just more and more celebrities getting into the rosé game, especially next door in the Provence region. You've got Brad Pitt, George Lucas, George Clooney. Don't forget Post Malone. Can't forget Post Malone with his uh, Maison Number no. 9 rosé. I didn't get to speak to him, but I did connect with Tony Parker, the French-American NBA star, just after the 2022 harvest was completed. He has partnered with entrepreneur Michel Rebier, most famously of Costa Esternel in Bordeaux, and together they purchased the Chateau Le Mascaron in Provence. Welcome, Tony Parker. We're so honored to have you in our office today. Thanks for coming by to talk about all things rosé and beyond at La Mascaron. Thanks for having me. So you are just back from Harvest 2022, and yes. this is your first Harvest really hands-on since you purchased the property. Tell me what that was like and what you learned and what surprised you. Uh, my back hurts, but uh, <laughs> besides that, I'm okay. No, it, it was a great experience, a unique experience. Uh, I always saw it on, on magazines or on documentaries, uh, preparing you know the wine, the harvest, and how tough it is in uh, a lot of work. And so uh, it was my first time uh, really uh, enjoying uh, uh, the moment and really uh, participating. How long uh, did you last out there? Five minutes. Okay. I was done. (laughs) (laughs) I was done. I had no idea. Like, it's really like a hard work and it gives you um, a different prospect on the, like how people work so hard to make uh, those bottles. You drink it and you like, you know, sometimes you don't really realize how much work goes behind uh, all of those bottles. And so it was nice to see that and to see the energy. Uh, it was just a, a great time. And um, I like the whole process, you know, mm-hmm. obviously the harvest, but then drinking all the parcels, you know, to try it, uh, every one of them and then mixing them and try to find the right uh, blend uh, to say, okay, this one's going to be our 2022. Like the whole process was pretty good. And uh, it was the whole team of La Mascaron, but we had the, the big boss from uh, Cos too, Cos Destournel, who was one of the best one in the world and Bordeaux in the world. So we had a lot of great and uh, knowledgeable people at the table. So for me, it was just a great experience. I was really learning and uh, being a, a little sponge. Well, and it's particularly hard work when you are farming organically, like you are, and everything is handpicked. No shortcuts. Yeah, no, no shortcuts. And, uh, and Mr. Rebier, uh, my partner, uh, is really um, animated about that. Everything by hand, uh, everything has to be uh, perfect, you know, uh, uh, all the, the safety stuff, you know, and how we're going to do it and the good grapes, the bad ones. Sometimes they were throwing grapes. I was like, man, they look good. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> don't no, no, exactly. I was like, don't waste those. And they were like, no, they really like the, the quality that they want and the quality that uh, we're trying to have with the team is at a very high level. So there are quite a few celebrities putting their names on wines and especially Rosé from Provence. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very different project, though, because you are really hands-on and you're French. So yeah, you, but grew for up, me, you grew up yeah, in a wine culture. For, exactly. For me, when we say it's a lot of celebrities, I don't really see myself like a, a celebrity being in the wine business because I'm French and I grew up with it. It's in my culture. I always drink the wine uh, all my life. 
going to different vineyards every summer. Every time I had a chance that we had a break from the NBA, I will go uh, visit those people, those great families, because you have some great stories, you know, uh, and wine. Um, so I always knew I wanted to do something like that after I was done playing. Uh, but you need to spend time. You need to really, and, and I'm a type of person, I want it to be hands-on. I want to be uh, in all the meetings with the employees. I want it to be at the harvest or the, the last lunch with the, all the workers to say thank you and all the great energy they put into this hard summer, you know, hard months, you know, of September because the end was really tough. So I wanted to be hands-on. I wanted to be with a partner that can give me a room, to, you know, to express myself and give my opinion and participate on the choice on how we're going to blend and how we're going to make the wine. So I'm very uh, lucky and blessed uh, to be with Mr. Rebier. It was a great timing. So 2023 could be a very exciting year for you. I understand you are possibly going to be inducted into the don't NBA Hall of Fame. It, okay, don't sorry, sorry. It, don't jinx it. Okay. <laughs> if so, if it happens, what will you be drinking to celebrate? And I know you drink a lot more than just rosé, so you can you can Ooh, that's a great question. That's a great question. I didn't, I didn't even think about it to be honest with you. Oh, no. uh, what I'm going to open uh, uh, I'm going to have to say cost because, you okay. know, I'm part of it now. So I'm going to say cost. Uh, um, uh, you have access to some good vintages, I'd imagine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Angelus. Uh, mm. I have a bottle of Angelus. Uh, I think it's always nice to have a little Saint-Emilion. Uh, Angelus, Cheval Blanc. Mm, little Petrus, too. Then I don't want to be drunk, too. So I think those four bottles would be good. That's a good game plan. <laughs> I'm happy to report that Tony was just selected as one of this year's Basketball Hall of Fame inductees. And also since that interview, he has bought another estate, this time in the Rhone, Chateau Saint Laurent near Avignon. So he's keeping himself very busy with wine projects these days. Well, when I gave you the, the Rhone Valley at the end of last year, Kristen, I knew you were going to have fun, but I didn't know you were going to get Basketball Hall of Famers in the mix, too. So now I'm getting <laughs> extra jealous. But thanks for all that great reporting. The, the interview with Gerard Bertrand and um, all your viewer star-studded rosé producers there in Provence. I hope you're having fun. Anytime. And yes, I am. Well, I think that was a pretty good follow-up to the De Valaine interview there, getting Tony Parker, Rob. What do you think? Kings of France, James. It's been a chock-a-block episode, Rob, and we're not done yet. Aren't you supposed to be visiting Dr. Vinny? I absolutely am, although unlike the rest of today's guests, she is not from France. Or is she? It's time to unravel a little of the mystery behind the mysterious Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. Uh, hi, Dr. Vinny, and welcome back to this very special edition of Dr. Vinny's Mailbag. Special edition? What's so special about it? Well, I suppose some folks might consider this a rude question, but today we're going to be asking you a question we've been receiving for over a decade, which is, what are you and where did you come from? <laughs> I ask myself that all the time. Uh, so my origin story and how I became a wine superhero I was born from the mind of our publisher, Marvin Schenken, uh, back in 2005. He realizes that education in wine is an ongoing process, and he wanted to have a way for readers to ask questions without feeling intimidated. So he had this idea for a wine advice column with a cartoon logo, which he worked out with the art department. And then we asked our readers to come up with some names for Dr. Vinny. Do you want to hear some of the names that didn't make the cut? Because 
They're funny. Yes, please. Okay. Conrad Connoisseur. Mm. Wally the Wine Wallaby. And my favorite was Mighty Souse, but I understand why we didn't go with that. Um, in the end, the editors voted on Dr. Vinifera, or Vinny for short. And I like that because it makes me seem smart, but not stuffy, which is true. And a wine lover, but definitely not a snob. Well, I know what you look like, but for our listeners who can't see you, can you describe to us what you look like? I'm a cross between Mighty Mouse, Zorro... And someone holding a glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right. And you are of the mouse slash bear slash chipmunk. Sure. Yes. All of the above. We're not going to label it. No. Unlabeled. Well, thanks, Dr. Vinny. I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today. Wait, 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 wait a minute, Rob. You know, going down memory lane has me thinking about all of the thousands and tens of thousands of questions I've received in my inbox. Do you have any data on how many of those actually turned out to be page views of people reading my advice? Do I have data? I do. (laughs) Dr. Vinny, your column has been viewed well in excess of 10 million times ever since it first appeared on winespectator.com, and we are adding hundreds more every day. Wow, that gave me chills. You're making a difference. (laughs) I hope so. It makes me really happy that people have a place to ask the questions they might feel intimidated otherwise to ask. I mean, you're just asking a cartoon character, right? And you can ask our cartoon hero, Dr. Vinny, anything you like at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Thanks, Rob. Well, I learned something today. Just when you think you know somebody, you find out they have an alter ego as a superhero mouse bear. I think I have that right. I think this ought to be enough for episode eight, Rob, so why don't you take us out? The May issue of Wine Spectator includes not just our cover story on Gerard Bertrand and Bruce's Red Burgundy Tasting Report. It's got Kristen's Guide to Rosé Food Pairings, a summer entertaining menu, a guide to Irish whiskey, and our tasting report on the wines of Chile. If you have questions for us or you just want to drop us a line, you can email us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Next time, we'll be covering the June issue of Wine Spectator, and we'll be talking Napa and Sonoma travel, plus the latest wines from Oregon and much more, including the return of Wine Spectator senior editor for news, Mitch Frank. And you'll never leave us hanging for that James Molesworth wine pick, right? My sneak peek wine pick, you always give me that tongue twister that I have to read every episode. <laughs> is the 2020 HDV Chardonnay Carneros Hyde Vineyard. This is the Hyde de Villain joint venture, so we've got to tie in with this episode. And it's reviewed by my colleague Marianne Worobiec, who when she's not the super mouse bear, Dr. Vinny, she's covering California Chardonnay for us. And she gave this wine 96 points, costs $85. There's about 1,300 cases made, so you are going to find it. And she calls it a stunning, expressive white with a savory, minerally edge that's distinctive and crisp imparting elegance and restraint to the core of Honeycrisp Apple and more. The HDV Chardonnay Carneros Hyde Vineyard from the 2020 Vintage, 96 points. I think you're going to love it. Nice pick, James. I know Aubert is going to like that one. HDV was also in our 2022 Top 10 Wines of the Year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, it's been two decades that they've gotten this project up and running, and now it's starting to pay some serious dividends. The wines coming out of there, the Chardonnays and the Pinots are really impressive. And so that does it for us on this episode. Thanks for joining us here on Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff.